0: check them out on swings and misses radio.com that's monday through friday 8 a.m
1: nope. show doesn't exist anymore
0: it doesn't what hasn't
1: existed in five months in
0: five months what are we doing yeah. oh I wow that's december 24th the re- l-
1: latest retweet
0: well damn it all right so i'm gonna reset i this better
1: all stay on this okay. podcast
0: no, no no i got you
1: um, perfect this is the best so, introduction so, i've ever had
0: great yeah, great <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I will be your host, James Fox, senior editor here at Future Sox with us as well. Special guest today, Cody Decker, former minor league baseball player. If you haven't heard, look him up. He's got some pretty impressive statistics in the minors across his career.
1: Time, time, time. What is this introduction? I played in the major leagues and you're opening with minor leaguer? Listen, Cody, we were getting there.
0: You didn't let me finish. You
1: opened with Minor (laughs) Leaguer.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with the Future Socks podcast or the Future Socks brand, but this is a minor league centric podcast. Yeah, I get that. But
1: if I played in the big leagues, it's pretty damn implied I played in the minor leagues. All right, well,
0: Cody Decker spent time as well in the major leagues.
1: Can we? Nope, Minor Leaguer.
0: (laughs) Cody, thanks so much for taking the time. We're going to continue if you don't mind. Is that cool? I'll think about it. <laughs> All right. Our world. Uh, you're just living in it. Okay. Appreciate your time. Follow Cody at Decker six. What happened to swings and misses? And what are you doing now?
1: Right now? I'm doing nothing. I don't <laughs> have a job.
0: <laughs> we, hear you, we hear you on radio.com sports though. We hear you on 670 the score. That's yeah. I can
1: I do go on the score whenever, whenever I'm asked. I've been doing some stuff with Lawrence Holmes lately. I was on Dan, uh, on, uh, the Bernstein Rahimi show the other day, love going on their show. Um, yeah, I'm, I love going on the score. I, I think uh, Chicago radio, sports radio is one of my favorite places to be. I think like the score and the fan in New York to me are like kind of the holy grails when it comes to actual uh, sports radio. So that's, I, I always, I always relish every chance I get to go on the score.
0: Well, that's fantastic, Cody, because I, I got to know what the plan is now following your professional career. Obviously you're Making a name for yourself in sports media as a broadcaster, mm-hmm. as a personality, is that something that you foreseen after your professional career as a player? What was the thought process following your career?
1: I always thought I was going to be a major league manager. Uh, I remember one time I got called in the office while I was with the San Diego Padres. I was in um, big league camp in 2015, and I made a, I made a mistake. And I remember I got called in the office and got chewed out very hard very, very hard by my manager, Bud Black, who I have a frightening amount of respect for. And I remember he finished the scolding with a, you know, you're the only smart person in that entire clubhouse, right? The only one, like the only one, you should be in my seat in 20 years. And when he said that to me, it kind of clicked where I just said, yeah, I should be in your seat in 20, I should be in your seat in 10 years. I should be a big league manager. And as I and that's kinda how that was honestly the day that like my 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 sights kind of changed. Yeah, I hadn't been in the big leagues yet and I eventually that season got there, but I never got another opportunity again. But I always wanted to be a big league manager. I didn't even realize it till Bud Black actually yelled it at me. Yeah, I want to be a big league manager. But, you know, the, the road to becoming a big league manager is anything but the road it once was. It used to be you go and start your whole minor league career over and you start at the bottom and you work your way up. I've turned down many minor league manager jobs. I've turned down double-A manager jobs. I've turned down uh, a bunch of high-A jobs. I've been offered rookie level uh, more times than I'll ever care to actually mention. Um, but I, I, I just didn't see it making sense for me. I just finished 11 years playing professionally. I I retired on uh, July 7th, 2019. I had a a great end to my career, uh, but I, I retired because I got offered this job with Radio.com Sports to do my own show with my wife, Jennifer Sturger, and we did our show Swings and Misses for about a year and a half, and it was the best job I've ever had. Loved every second of it. Uh, unfortunately, COVID hit and obviously put a put a hell of a damper on all sports radio for quite a while. Things are finally on the upswing again, which is great to see. Um, but, you know, it, it, I took that job and I also took the job as the exec, uh, associate executive director of a baseball and softball nonprofit out of El Paso, Texas. Uh, kind of changing how baseball is played, taught, uh, learning, learning, uh, you know, incorporating as many metrics as we possibly can. All these things that were being that are being taught, you know, everywhere else, especially Los Angeles, where I grew up. But in El Paso, things were still very much in the dark ages. So I really wanted to improve the ball players there because that city means so much to me. I played there for two years when I was in the minors in AAA for the San Diego Padres, And I kind of fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the fans. And so I wanted to give back in that way. So I, I'm still doing that, of course. I'm, I'm still the associate executive director. I run that facility almost daily. I just happened to be in Los Angeles today. I came home for a week. I'm going to go back to El Paso on Thursday and work with players again on uh, Thursday evening. I have a full full week of just working with catchers, working with hitters, um, helping pitchers out. It, it's, it's a blast. I really love what I do right now. Unfortunately, my uh, contract with Radio.com Sports did come to an end, and I'm uh, currently a free agent, and I'm... Exploring all possibilities, including uh, staying with Radio.Com Sports, of which I absolutely love. I love Radio.Com. I've loved the opportunity of you know growing up in Los Angeles. Radio uh, was a very important thing to me. I was a regular on the Mark and Brian pro- uh, show on in uh, the mornings here in CAO West in Los Angeles. I was a huge fan of theirs to the point where Bri- uh, Mark from Mark and Brian, Mark Thompson, who's now in the Radio Hall of Fame, became my mentor. Uh, when he eventually left uh, KLOS, he started his own podcast network that got really popular and I was always on his podcast. And then after that, he got a, he got a job with Intercom, uh, hosting his own show on a, on a station in Los Angeles called uh, 100.3 The Sound, which no longer exists, unfortunately. It was an amazing radio station. And he had Mark in the Morning, of which he brought me on to work on that show. And that was all I was still playing. That was during my time in high school, college, and professional. And I worked in Mark in the Morning after I made it to the big league. So I was doing morning radio here in Los Angeles. While training for my next season, of which I eventually signed with the Royals. So radio has always been very much a part of my life. I used to have CDs, radio CDs of comedy bits from other uh, from Mark and Brian, from Kevin and Bean, uh, from Howard Stern, all these all these radio personalities that I just could not stop listening to. In Los Angeles, especially, it was crazy. You had Mark and Brian, Howard Stern, Kevin and Bean. Uh, you had, Um, I'm I'm not even thinking of the, oh, Big Boy, Uh, you know, eventually Ryan Seacrest. You had, before that, you had uh, Rick D. So it was, it was every station was heavy hitter, heavy hitter, heavy hitter. And I just kind of fell in love with radio. And then I, you know, I've done a lot of TV work and, you know, the options that are out there for me are kind of interesting and really out there. But I really love what I'm doing in the baseball sports media uh, landscape. I feel like baseball doesn't have enough people speaking from a conscience standpoint, I think baseball is so nuts and bolts right now that uh, the game has been so horrifically dehumanized. And it's my goal in what I do on radio or television when I talk about baseball. And is I want to I want to add the human element back into it to make pe- fans really realize what's in front of them rather than, OK, well, here's a 3.4 war and a whip of 6-3. And, oh, his ERA against lefties in August after 7 p.m. is this like who? Who cares? Honestly, who cares? It's a hitter. It's a pitcher. Let's talk about the human element and see what's actually going on here right now in front of your eyes.
2: So, Cody, that's a pretty good segue for me because, you know, when the White Sox hired Tony Larusa, you know, I heard some of your thoughts about that hire and I was as apprehensive as anyone you know, about the process and about them hiring him in general. But after seeing the coaching staff he's assembled, you know, I like Ethan Katz and uh, Miguel Cairo, Shelley Duncan, Jerry Naren joined recently. Those seem like pretty big additions to the staff. Have your, like, I guess, thoughts on, you know, the, the whole thing changed, like, you know, with some of the names that joined Tony in Chicago?
1: Um, well, let's go through it. I, I played for Jerry Naren. Uh, there are no, there are not enough words in the English dictionary to say how much I love this guy. Uh, Jerry Naren, somebody asked me, what do you think about Jerry Naren? They already have their bench coach in place. Why Jerry Naren? Because quite frankly, if a Jerry Naren is available to you, you make space for him. I don't care what the job is. You, you give him the title of janitor. I don't care. Have Jerry Naren around your team. Your team is instantly better. Um, I am I, I, a big fan of Ethan Katz. I've known him for a while. Uh, I wouldn't say we're best friends, but I've known each other. We've known each other decently for the last 10 years. Uh, He's a good pitching coach. I think he has been um, a pitching coach who has greatly, greatly benefited by having, while he was a high school pitching coach at Harvard Westlake, having three of the best arms in the country. That wasn't necessarily his doing, but he did a great job of honing them in and helping them get to the point to where they are today. So he's done a great job when he was at the Mariners organization. He became the assistant uh, pitching coach with San Francisco last year to Glowing Reviews. I'm very excited for for his opportunity over there in Chicago. I think it's a great pickup. I think it's a good opportunity for him. He's got a great leg in the door with Lucas Giolito, knowing him since he was 15. So that's just an Added bonus. Uh, He comes in with immediate credibility. I do worry though that the Chicago media is making this guy out to be this pitching guru that I'm sorry, he's not. That's not what he is. He's not coming in and remaking pitching for you guys. That's not, that's never been the case. And I do sometimes worry that you guys are, not you guys particularly, but a lot of people in the Chicago media are building him up to be something he's not. He's not a cure all of a pitching coach. He's a good pitching coach and he's a great hire. But he's not going to turn everybody into Lucas Giolito. That's just nonsensical. Um, the other coach you mentioned, Shelly Duncan. I played for Shelly Duncan. I've known Shelly Duncan a long time. What a guy. Great, great person to have around a clubhouse. Truly funny and great and just uh, just a guy you want to play for. So I think Tony La Russa, which, again, I'm still apprehensive about that hire. Um, I feel as though he is a... I'm going to say relic, but relic of of an era of baseball that I feel like needs to kind of go away. I'm not saying that he's an old relic. It's more like he's kind of a portion of baseball that is wear your socks high, don't say a word, and whatever you do, don't smile. That's not baseball to me. That's not how this game should be played, and that's not the direction the game is going. That being said, he has done an incredible job of surrounding himself with very good coaches, Uh, He's got a young and truly exciting ball club. Uh, I'm so excited to watch the White Sox play this season. To me, they are the clear favorites in the American League Central. And I don't even think there's a close second, and I'm including the Twins. I think the Twins are going to finish about 10 games behind them. And I'm not sold that the Indians can compete in any way, shape, or form. I think the Royals might have a chance to finish third. Maybe even have a chance to crack one of those wild card spots. Because the American American League West is in disarray. And right now, the American League East is a two-team race.
0: I think a lot of our listeners, readers, fans of the White Sox as well resonate with what you're saying about your apprehension toward Tony La Russa as a manager coming into the modern era. Really good stuff, too, about Ethan Katz, and I want to take you back there real quick. You mentioned himself and his credibility, but... The White Sox moved on from Don Cooper, and you talk about relics. This is a this is a guy who's been a mainstay in the organization for multiple decades, and he's had success as well in his track record. When you go from Don Cooper to Ethan Katz, what about Ethan Katz's maybe personality, his strengths as a pitching coach will help the young pitchers like like a Giolito and Kopech, Dylan C specifically?
1: I know it doesn't seem like much, and I know from the outside looking in, when I say age like it like it's an important thing, there is something to playing for a coach that is older, because immediately it just lends itself to respect. So when you're talking about Cooper, you're talking about a guy that's been around for a long time. You just innately respect him. Now you got a guy named Ethan Katz, young guy. He's only a few years older than me. Uh, Ethan Katz comes in with a hell of a track record right now. Um, that has been greatly, and, and again, I, I don't want to sit here and say Ethan Katz is not a good pitcher. He's a very good pitching coach, and he absolutely deserves this job. He earned this opportunity. But he comes in with a track record that very much is lent to him by three superstar pitchers that he had in high school. We can't we can't sit here and pretend that's not the case. He had Lucas Giolino. He had Max Fried. He had Jack Flaherty. All first-rounders. So, obviously, he comes with that pedigree. So... A guy that young, who has influenced that many players at that high of a level, people are going to start looking at him. And I think the Chicago media has already done that, either to his benefit or detriment. They've looked at him like, this is the next guru. This is the the guy that's going to take everyone to the next level. And I think all those pitchers will totally buy into that. I'm worried about the bad month. What happens if the White Sox pitchers slip for a month? Does the Chicago media go ahead and turn on Ethan Katz? Do the players still respond to Ethan Katz the same way? These are kind of things that will be answered throughout the season. I don't foresee there being too much of a problem. I feel like that pitching staff is too good in uh, in Chicago right now. I think that the White Sox are going to absolutely dominate their division. But I do sometimes worry because I don't need to tell you that Ethan Katz is coming in with a, a really, really, not even high pedigree. An expectation that I don't think is realistic.
2: So, you know, they made some additions this offseason the White Sox, obviously, with Liam Hendricks and Lance Lynn, and they brought back Adam Eaton. You know, one thing they didn't do was add like an everyday DH type guy. Andrew Vaughn is expected to be the primary DH at some point this year, and I think probably for 140-plus games or so. Um, he hasn't played above high A after being the fourth pick in the draft. He was at the alternate site last year, and, you know, I saw him there, and, like, you know, it's all the batted ball data and stuff. They seem to think he's going to be ready sooner than most people think. So my question for you, how, how crazy is it that he's just going to skip double A altogether and potentially play in the big leagues this year?
1: Pretty crazy. Um, when I say crazy, uh, I mean, it's not unheard of. Uh, you, there are a lot of guys that shot through the minor leagues to some, serious, some to great success. But they always say there's an old there's an old attache in baseball that basically says, if you can be successful in AA, you can be successful in the big leagues. Plain and simple. It's all a matter of opportunity. If you can hit in AA, you can be a major league all-star in the big leagues. No question about it. The level is exactly the same. Don't let anybody tell you different. The level in the AAA to the big leagues is no different. It's exactly the same um the difference is is just simply opportunity um this guy is a high draft pick he's going to normally you give these guys all the opportunity in the world to just fail in the minor leagues and they just fail upwards to the big leagues eventually that's just what happens um i think that any guy that has not played in double a should be playing in double a at least get the opportunity to You know, struggle a little bit because if you're going to have your first moment in professional baseball struggling in the big leagues, especially in a major market like Chicago, you're setting, you're dooming this kid to failure. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I hope this kid goes out and dominates and plays great, Um, but he's young and that can have one hell of an effect on a young player. Take a guy like Nomar Mazzara. That guy was... I saw him play for the first time against me in spring training in 2016. And all I can think is, this kid is a potential legitimate MVP caliber superstar. Every single time he comes to the field. I hope they don't rush him. Which they did. They rushed him. He's been in the big leagues ever since. And I just think, man, if only they gave him a little more time just to mature a little more. Would this guy right now be a perennial all-star? I think he would be. Um, I still think he's a hell of a player, but I don't think he's been put in the best opportunity for himself. I felt the same thing happened with Johan Moncada. I felt like he rushed to the big leagues too quickly. I felt like he could have used a little more time. It's working out well now because he's a good ball player, great athlete, and a really great guy and a great teammate to have around. But I do think you need to give these players an opportunity to fail under a smaller microscope because they are going to fail at some point. How are they going to react to that failure? I know we're sitting around talking about numbers because numbers are the most obvious thing and they're tangible, but the things that are most important in baseball are the things you can't touch and feel They're the intangibles that you cannot even you can't even dissect unless you're in it with them,
0: yeah, I think man that it makes too much sense, right? because obviously the White sox lately have been relatively patient with their top prospects and there was an opportunity at the end of 2019 to potentially call up a Luis Robert, but they decided against it. And all these unforeseen circumstances based in 2020 related to COVID have really thrown things for a loop. And I, I want to take you here because related to Andrew Vaughn, yeah, it applies because of a full year loss, but also still working out and facing live pitching and being around major leaguers at the alternate site. Sure, but it's not like you're competing at a professional level across 140 in a minor league season from Vaughn to Garrett Crochet real quick Cody because mm. this story is something that we are going to be on top of all season long. Crochet made his debut, skipped all of the minor leagues, right? Just participated in his first draft or in his draft year in Schaumburg, makes his debut in the big leagues. Now the White Sox after his first full off season as a professional are expecting him to contribute at the major league level. They're saying they would like him to develop as a starting pitcher but they will use him as a maybe a multi-inning reliever, late-inning reliever in high-leverage spots this year.
1: Is that dangerous for a player like that? Can be, but, you know, if you're going to have a guy that's going to be a spot, now that guy's got a, an absolute, not even a cannon for an arm is not an accurate thing to say. And yes, there have been other pitchers that have completely skip the minor leagues. Like I, I believe it was Flanagan left-handed pitcher out of Kansas city who played in the college world series. And then later, three months later was pitching in the major league world series. It does happen. Um, but again, that was, became kind of a morality tale in that, um, sorry, not morality tale, cautionary tale. It becomes a cautionary tale because what did Flanagan do after that? He didn't really get a chance to mature and be an everyday guy uh, in Major League Baseball. And I honestly don't, last place I saw him was in spring training with the Reds. Is that gonna be a situation for Crochet? I don't think so, and here's why. 101 mile per hour fastball is a 101 mile per hour fastball. Uh, it's something you can't necessarily teach. You can teach guys to gain speed, gain velocity, but to have that velocity and control, that's, another sep- that's a separate topic altogether. And they always say, well, you know, a 98 in the big leagues gets hit. Yeah, it does, but not easily. It doesn't matter if it's flat. A ball coming at you at 98 miles per hour or harder is extremely difficult to hit. Um, if that was the case, Araldus Chapman would get hit all the time. But he's not hit all the time. This fastball's as flat as can be. So it's just, it's, it's just one of those things where I think he has the opportunity to be successful. And I think... This might be a situation where Tony La Russa might really come in handy, because I think Tony La Russa, I don't think uh, old school mentality is, hey, let's rush all all these young guys. Sometimes you got to handle them with kid gloves.
2: So something I wanted to ask you about was expanded playoffs. And, you know, obviously the way that it was proposed to players was a no-go. It's, you know, it's never going to happen, like, you know, for this year. But many believe that you know, they don't like it because it disincentivizes spending at the top, obviously. And while that is probably true, won't the traditional five, like, team playoffs in each league this year, won't that, I think it's going to lead to, like, crazy amounts of sellers this year and a lot of tanking, just because of, like, how top-heavy some of these divisions are, is that actually, like, worse for the sport right now than, than... you talking about the, the expanded, expanded, play-
1: expanded playoffs?
2: Yeah, because, I mean, I think the reason, like, people are against it, obviously, is that it, it probably does disincentivize spending right like at the top but by not doing it i feel like you got so many teams like the entire nl west like other than the top two teams who like why why even bother right and it's going to create this environment where everybody's selling is that actually worse for the game than expanding the playoffs right now i think
1: it's a i think it's a damn if you do damn if you don't situation i think if you expand playoffs you not only devalue players but you devalue franchises you, now we're going to talk about teams that are under 500 making it deep into the playoffs. And then we're sitting with an NBA situation. I hate the NBA playoffs more than any other playoffs because it doesn't feel like playoffs. It feels like a second season because everyone's in it. And that makes no sense to me. If you take a 162-game season and then you just left half 50% of the teams into the playoffs, then what was the point of the 162-game season? Just might as well make the whole thing playoffs. That's... that's Everything about this is about money. It's about playing, paying players less, about putting more money in the owner's pockets. More teams get into playoffs, that's more revenue sharing off playoff money and TV revenue, plain and simple, that's all. And then by doing that, you're going to inadvertently devalue, well not inadvertently on the play, on the owner's side, but you're on the player's side, you're gonna be inadvertently devaluing the players going forward. Well, you can't pay a premium on this guy, why do that? Why would you pay this guy $40 million when the team can play without him and make playoffs two levels down and we're just still in the same spot at either way. That's a serious slippery slope we're playing with here.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, major league baseball took a machete basically to minor league baseball, you know, the draft is going to be 20 rounds. So, you know, it's better than five last year, but it's definitely not 40. I guess what are your thoughts overall on the decision to do what they did to the minor leagues? And then, you know, the impact that it'll have going forward.
1: Um, the impact going forward is going to be something that I'm really scared about, and that's shrinking baseball. The last ten years, Major League Baseball has put on a good face talking about, hey, we want to, you know, expand the game. The world baseball classic. Get the game in more more cities around the world. Make it a world game. And I'm all for that. But you can't promote the game saying we're gonna make this game and grow it and then shrink it in our own country. We're taking professional teams out of small towns, an affordable night of watching professional sports that is no longer existing in a lot of towns. And that is something that really, really scares me. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a baseball hotbed. I could—I dri- went to Dodger games my whole life. If I wanted to, I could go to Angel games. And if I really wanted to, I could drive down to San Diego for a couple hours and see a Padre game. I had access to Major League Baseball and also I had access to, on my drive from L.A. to San Diego, about six minor league teams as well. So baseball was beyond accessible to me. Say you grew up in Helena, Montana. Baseball is not accessible to you, and the only baseball you're exposed to is that short season A-ball team that no longer exists. So now they're not getting any exposure to baseball at a high level. This is going to basically take the game away from a lot of people who should be able to see the game at a high level at an an affordable cost, I might add. If you've gone to a Major League Baseball game, it is not a cheap night out. But a minor league game is... Very much a cheap night out and you get to see some great caliber baseball and it upsets me that a lot of people don't get this anymore and they made the argument, well, independent leagues. Independent leagues are not very sustainable. They just aren't. The um, Atlantic League has a lot of backing from Major League Baseball, so much so that the Atlantic League has now been adapted into Major League Baseball. There are three Atlantic League teams in Major League and Minor League Baseball now that was never a possibility a year ago but now here we are the 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 minor league contraction was very shady from the get-go I hate the fact that Major League Baseball saw the, the the COVID-19 as a fig leaf to basically just do whatever they wanted. They didn't just gut the minor leagues. They tried last year like hell to gut the CBA that was already agreed to. And they tried their very best, like they always do because this is their playbook, to make the players look like a bunch of greedy millionaires. When you're being told that there's a bunch of greedy millionaires on the field, but the people that's telling you are a bunch of billionaires, can you please start paying attention?
0: On that indie ball topic, I, I love it. I love that we're getting to this point because I agree with you. I think indie ball leagues are, are dangerous because they're obviously independently operating. and they have to make sure that they maintain revenue and generate sources of income in their uh, specific markets. And like in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area, there are multiple independent ball teams in several leagues. And we saw Kane County now joining an independent group, losing their minor league affiliation. And, and that's a little bit off topic, but w- when it comes to my uh, independent league baseball, how much experience do you have within knowing about those leagues, those players who have spent time in the leagues? How realistic are those players moving up to the next level? I mean, we all know on the surface it's another option for players to continue their professional career, but realistically, is it sustainable for those players to rely on that, or you know, use that as an option to continue their professional careers?
1: It is an option, but it's not a great one. It's, it's, how do I put it? What I tell, when I work with young players and I talk to them about, you know, continuing their baseball life after the age of 18, anytime you play after the age of 18, it's an absolute, absolute accomplishment. If you play at 19 years old, I don't care where it is, an NAIA, a junior college, uh, a D1, D2, D3, doesn't matter. If you play after 18, it's an accomplishment. That being said, If you have the opportunity to go to a D1 school knowing full well that you're not going to play for a couple of years or going to a junior college where you're going to start every day, I always tell somebody, go to the D1, plain and simple. You're not going to play. And if you go to a junior college, you're going to a junior college to simply, best case scenario, put you in the exact exact same scenario that you're in right now with that D1. You go to a junior college, you're going to go to a D1, and you're not going to play. That's how it works. And you're just starting all over again. I always tell somebody to do that. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because it's very much like indie ball. Is it impossible to get to the big leagues from indie ball? No, is it likely? I would say uh it's almost impossible. Almost impossible. There are exceptions to the rule. Daniel Nava is the one that really comes to mind because his first at bat when he hit a grand slam in the big leagues with the Boston Red Sox, the first thing they all said, from indie ball all the way to here. That is a very very rare example. Again, it's not impossible, but the examples of people who eventually had no choice but to go to indie ball that eventually made their way back to the big leagues, I would say the number is less than 20 all time.
2: So I mean like with with these changes to the minor leagues, like how would somebody like yourself and look, like you, you know, you went in the 22nd round but you had a long career, 200 homers in the minor leagues, made it to the majors, You know, your 22nd rounder signed as a college senior. Like, so somebody like that now, do you just, you know, you have to weigh, do you take the 20K at that point? Or do you, you know, maybe you give up on the baseball dream. You know, how does, how does that really work with some of the guys now that are going to have to make that decision? It
1: depends solely on so many, it it depends on a lot of variables. How much school do you have left? Are you, is it your junior year? Okay. That you're being offered $20,000 or you go back for your senior year? Well, you should probably go back for your senior year because that $20,000 is not going to change your life. In fact, it's going to be gone by month two of your first season because you don't realize that you're about to get paid nothing for the next seven years and that you got to live off that 20 grand. And in the offseason, you're not going to be able to get a job. And you're also not able to get other different employment in baseball because you're under contract for seven years. It's a very there are great things about minor league baseball and professional baseball. But there is a very, very, very serious dark side to it. Um, People don't realize, like, I I hated when uh, people try to come after me on Twitter, it's like, oh, well, you made all this money. Dude, I slept in my car one season because I couldn't afford rent. Uh, I just couldn't. I was making $600 every two weeks. I had to ship my car from AA to AAA. That cost me $800. By the time I got my car, I couldn't afford a room anywhere, so I had to sleep in my car in the parking lot at Kino Stadium. That's what I had to do. It was the only way I could survive because it was either, all right, I can go get a hotel room or I could not eat this next week. That's the decisions I had that were put in front of me. It there are ugly there is ugliness if you pull back the curtain a little bit, but there's a lot of beauty to it too. You know, there's a lot of dues that are getting paid. You you all hear about these million dollar contracts, these hundred million dollar contracts for every one of those, there are 10,000 guys who slept in their car, who are not only just at that level or just under that level, they're they're more than good enough to be paid a $25 million contract. They just never got the opportunity to do so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's some very real experiences right there. And I appreciate you sharing. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to dive deeper into your experience as a minor leaguer. Also, obviously, former big leaguer, of course, too. Uh, but... Here's something that kind of pertains to what you were getting at there. The bad attached to minor league baseball, as it comes to financial security and stability, and players are just here and there one day, you know, and they don't want to give up on the dream, but they're sometimes forced to. You don't want to play at indie ball because, like you said, the the money as well over there isn't great. I know in the frontier league, I think the max contract per month is sixteen hundred dollars. So you know that's. And that's the max deal that you're getting. This is, it's tough. So how do you protect the players? And I guess my question is, is there a chance that minor league baseball ever adopts a union? Is that possible?
1: Absolutely not. Will never, ever, ever happen. If, if, if these last six months have proved anything, it's that minor leaguers will have even less power going forward. Because not only do the players not have power, we just found out that all the minor league owners, which by the way, a lot of billionaires in that list, they had no power to stop what just happened. So we just watched multi-billionaires take advantage of abnormal billionaires and millionaires. It was really, really something to watch to see this happen. Also, the lack of information that was given out about it was pretty staggering. Questions that were being asked, no one had answers to. Um, could they ever unionize? No. The only way it could ever happen is if Major League Baseball Players Union decides to adopt the minor leaguers, of which they will not do. I was told to my face by Tony Clark when I asked him this very simple simple question in 2016. I uh, just got, um, at this point I was still in the Players Union because when you make it to the big leagues, you're in the Players Union. I paid my dues, both literally and figuratively. I paid the Players Union the money that they asked for. And then by the time I that offseason came, I got DFA'd by the Padres. I signed with the Royals. And until opening day of the next season, I'm still in the players' union because they, you know, I'm fighting for a chance to make the big league club. Sadly, I was the 26th man on that Royals team. I got sent down after the last big league game of spring training at Chase Stadium. I thought I made the team. Unfortunately, didn't work out. All good. But I remember a week before I asked Tony Clark after our meeting with him, uh, the, every, every team has a meeting with Tony Clark and a few associates. And I asked a very, we went on a whole tangent about wearable technology, which is a very real threat to, to players and the Players Association. And then we spent so much time talking about uh, being compensated for autographs that I nearly, I nearly put my head through a wall. I'm like, wow, nothing in my life could matter less than this topic. When the real topic we need to talk about is, I'm in this room right now. In two weeks, I am no longer protected by the Players Association. I'm on a contract that is not guaranteed. Everyone else in that room, they're on guaranteed contracts, and they're going to continue being protected by that union no matter what happens this season. So after the meeting, I talked to Tony Clark. I said, hey, real question. We're in the big league locker room. Over there is the minor league locker room that has 230 players in it. I made it to the big leagues and I paid my dues physically, both literally and figuratively. In two weeks, you will no longer protect me. When are you going to protect a guy like me? And he just stared at me and he actually said this out loud and I'll never forget it. and I'll never forget my reaction. He said to me, well, Deck, you got to re- realize you were a guy that was never supposed to make it.
2: Hmm.
1: I nearly spat my coffee out on him and said, well, that was an answer to a question. It just sure as hell wasn't the question I just asked you. And then he took a break and he says, well, you know, Deck, it's just not in the cards for us right now. I'm like, great. Well, then your union – and I just looked at him like, then your union's a joke because Mm -hmm. Eric Hosmer over there doesn't need your help. Mike Moustakis over there doesn't need your help. I need your help. And like clockwork, the Royals – and this wasn't because the Royals were bad by any stretch. They thought they were doing me a favor. They traded me two weeks later to the Rockies who then immediately released me. I had no protection. I had nothing that I could do. I was just – a victim of the circumstance in front of me and, but it's okay because I was never supposed to make it according to the head of the players association.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we see always in the news, at least when I say always the last couple of seasons now, and then what we can look forward to in 2021, the players association versus the owners. And it seems like a lot of the time the players association are going to bat for these high profile names when in reality the union is, like you were saying, trying to protect the players like you. And how, how is that a functioning union for the players' side when they're always trying to maintain and hold leverage over the owners, but they're also only trying to really protect, at least on the surface to me as a fan, guys like Mike Trout and the
1: high names in Major League Baseball? Hmm, sounds like a problem, doesn't it? How do they do it? They do, the answer is they don't. That's, that's it. Yeah. They don't. Yeah, And uh, and, and for as much as as much as they're it's not like they're the good guys and the owners are the bad guys It's I think there's plenty of blame all over the place I do obviously side with the players way more than I do the owners But let's not pretend that the Players Association does not have plenty of flaws. They do plenty of them Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that is has to do with short-sightedness just um, I think a lot of people forget what they went, well, forget what a lot of guys had to go through. Because the majority of the guys in the big leagues aren't 22nd rounders. They're rounds one through five. And it wasn't necessarily got to the big leagues because they put up the best numbers. They got to the big leagues because they had the highest investment in them. That's not to say that we don't have a chock full of the best players in the world in the Major League Baseball. We do. But I firmly believe we have uh, all-stars, MVP candidates, and honest-to-God Hall of Famers that we never heard of because they never got the opportunity because there wasn't a, a substantial financial investment in them.
0: You know, going back to the opportunity part of the conversation earlier in the episode here is you know cutting down minor leagues, uh, minor league levels, yeah, Great Falls here in our case with the White Sox, yeah, it could be uh, a rookie affiliate, short season rookie affiliate, but that could be the opportunity a player's looking for. Or it's an opportunity where a player makes that advancement. Like for example, there's several 19 year olds in the White Sox system right now that are ticketed for full season Canapolis. It's like, hey, are they ready for that? Well, you better be because you have no choice. Um, and man, that does—it's really good stuff, Cody. Really appreciate that uh, on the minor league union front because how how are they supposed to get representation when they're battling all that adversity? Yeah, it's
1: just—it's yeah. just—it's impossible. It's it for lack of it, it's just—it's impossible, unfortunately. I would give anything for them to be protected. I would give anything for the Players Association just to finally get together and said, we need to protect these guys. That would make my day. But as described to me by Tony Clark, he said, after what I already told you, he said, what would we have to give up to get that? And he's not wrong, by the way. That is the other ugly part. As much as I can throw shade over at Tony Clark's way for what he said, he's not wrong in that, if he wants to get these players protected which i'm sure he does he's not not protecting minor leaguers because he's a bad guy it's to do that what if, what are the players going to honestly have to get give up they're going to set themselves themselves back arguably 10 years just to get these minor leaguers in
0: interesting uh real quick cody on your career within the minor or within the san diego padres is it seven years, I believe, you spent and made your... Yes. well, seven seasons. Seven seasons, sorry. Seven seasons and made your debut in 15. What was it like? I mean, for you, we talked about the 22nd round pick, grinding your way through the minor leagues and then in your seventh season, making your debut with San Diego. Take me through that process and, and what it was like for you achieving that goal.
1: Ups and downs. Um, there was parts of it that were so amazing, um, you know, getting the call. Was I? I thought I was. I thought was ha- I thought was going to have a heart attack. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, amazing moment in my life. Getting to tell my wife, then girlfriend at the time, who pit- was picking up from the airport at the time. Um, her being the first person to find out. Me getting calls and texts from players and <laughs> and coaches that I've known for a year that I just ha- years that I had outrageous respect for. Um, this is a true story. Uh, The moment I got off the phone with Sam Gainey, head of player development at the time with the San Diego Padres, where he told me I'm going to the big leagues. I hung up the phone on that baggage claim and I'm just shaking. I don't know what to do. And I was about to call somebody and then my phone rings and it was Reggie Smith. And if you don't know who Reggie Smith is, he was a major leaguer for 15 years, Boston Red Sox, Hall of Fame. He was in the Dodgers, won a World Series in 81 with them. Um, You know, over 315 career Switch hitting home runs in, in Major League Baseball. just an absolute legend and he was my mentor growing up. He was my hitting coach from the age of eight till I mean technically I never stopped hitting with him so technically he's still one of my hitting coaches. Um, Reggie called me and I just I saw my phone ringing Reggie Smith and I answered the phone. I'm just like, hey Reggie and he's just like, congratulations, I'm so happy for you And I just like, what are you talking about? I just got off the phone 10 seconds ago. Being told, how did you know this before me? And he just laughed like, oh, I've known this for weeks. I just didn't want to tell you. I wanted to, I waited for this moment. Like, how did you know he got off the phone with me? He's like, I didn't. That was just pure luck. I'm like, wow. Wow, this is awesome. And I was starting wondering how many other people knew. And I got, you know, messages from, um, you know, ex-teammates from UCLA. You know, Garrett Cole at this point was on his way to becoming a superstar. He sent me a lovely text message. Brandon Crawford sent me a lovely text message. Uh, Amy Cole, Brandon's sister, and, and and Garrett's wife sent me a, a great text message. Uh, coaches, players—I I mean, I remember—I I remember when we played at Colorado. Um, you know, Brandon Barnes, who I played, we went to the minor leagues all with each other for years, and but then he'd been in the big leagues at the point for two years. He made sure that I was brought out to the field to see him because he wanted to hug me um, during batting practice because he was so happy I finally got a chance. There, there were things that were just amazing. Um, sadly, it wasn't the opportunity I hoped, but I got my one major league start, my one start. And, um, you know, I love the Padres. I still root for the Padres. If I consider myself a fan of any team, I would probably consider myself a Padre fan. I feel like I owe them so much. I got seven years in that organization made relationships that I'll, I'll cherish for the rest of my life, and they were the team that gave me the opportunity to say that I'm a major league baseball player. So I will forever feel in-depth the San Diego Padres. But being a kid that grew up in Los Angeles and getting my one start at Dodger Stadium, I can't begin to tell you what that felt like. I'm sitting there playing first base. I'm standing in Chavez Ravine in a packed stadium. And I'll never forget this. The third inning ended with a ground out, I think sh- to, to shortstop Jed Jerko, and I remember I caught the ball at first. I turn around, I start to run, jog into my dugout. And I look up in the stands, and I don't know how I saw him. It was a father of a kid I'd been giving lessons to for seven years. Hmm. And me and this guy had been good friends for a while now. We, we became like drinking buddies, this guy. He was just a really great guy. And there were times where I had some troubles in my minor league career financially. And he was a financial advisor and he took care of me. Like he helped me out sometimes. He would give me financial advice. He was just the most wonderful guy. But I remember I spotted him and he was at the very like top row of the first level of the first base side. And I spotted him and you know, when you throw a ball at that distance underhand, you're not exactly accurate but I remember I threw an underhand pitch to him about 120 feet up into the stands, directly at him. And he lifted his hand up and caught it barehandedly. It was a perfect throw and a perfect catch. And I just remember that moment he caught it with that same hand points at me, and I just pointed at him I'm like, my God, look what is happening right now. I'm just playing a game in Dodger Stadium. And people who have been there to help me out throughout my entire life are all here. My family's here, my friends are here, and people that I gave lessons to their kids are here. Like, this is just amazing. And uh, all that game was just so special, so special. It's it's one of the highlights of my life that day. Yeah, baseball, awesome. man. I love
2: yeah. it. Yeah, it's awesome. So, you know, we always hear about, you know, when the the big-time star major leaguer goes down to the minors on, like, a rehab stint. Do you have a, a good story about that maybe where a guy came down and bought you a huge food spread or something for the whole team? Oh, yeah.
1: Well, it's almost – it's kind of – it's. Not mandatory, but it's mandatory. You're a big league. You go down to the minor leagues for a rehab stint. You're gonna, you're gonna get, you're paying for spread, and it better be good spread. Because we, if a guy like me, especially a guy like me who was a veteran guy who, um, for for better or worse had a lot of respect in the clubhouses that I was in. Don't know why. I'm, I'm, I'm not that great. But it was. I was always labeled to be the Crash Davis guy. I was always the guy that was supposed to keep the team together, and and I and I always relish that role and especially those last four years of my career that was what i really took to i i I focused more on helping other guys because helping them helped me um and and vice versa and it was something about seeing a guy that i helped gain success that just made me feel like i i really accomplished something um but my favorite are two stories. One was I was playing in Sacramento as a visiting player. I believe I was with the Reno Aces at the time. I think it was 2000. This is the year 2017 when I was playing for Vegas in the Met, for the Mets or when I was playing for the D-backs in Reno. And I remember uh, Hunter Pence, who I just love. Couldn't love him more. One of the nicest guys you could ever meet in baseball. I remember he was sitting there hitting, and he was wearing his one ear flap. I'm like, "Oh, I must be hurt you know, on a rehab stint." He gets to first base on a walk, and I just sat there, and I'm like, "Hunter, how you doing?" He's like, Dak. Pats me on the back, we're just chatting, I'm like, "So, man, I didn't know you were hurt. I'm sorry, man. What do you, uh, what are you rehabbing?" And he just like put his head down, looked up at me with a smile, he's like, "Oh, I'm not hurt. I'm rehabbing my bat. My bat's injured, so I'm just here to fix that." I'm like, "Oh, but what injury, injury did they say you had?" I think I have a sprained ankle. Oh, how's a sprained ankle? Perfectly fine. Just the bat. It's just the bat. I'm just rehabbing my bat. And and I just loved that sentence so much. Um, But outside of that, a team that I was on, my favorite was um, Carlos Quinton, who I love and adore. Carlos Quinton, if you've ever met him, this is a guy who I feel like was really misunderstood in baseball. He came off really intense and could almost seem mean. He's not, he's actually a sweetheart, absolute sweetheart, but he didn't come off approachable which obviously may, meant I was going to approach him nonstop and purposely annoy him to the point where he he ended up loving me. <laughs> so I remember uh, he gets on a rehab assignment in El Paso with me and I remember I decorated his locker before he got there. I made like all these poster boards and I bedazzled them and glittered them of him uh, fighting Zach Granke in that brawl earlier in that year and then I and then I found other photos of him looking upset, and I made a thing like have a smiley day with Carlos Quinton all over his locker. And he just, look, he just comes in. He's like, Deck. I'm like, what? How do you know that was me? He's like, who else would it be? All right, it was me. And then I remember we were playing in Fresno uh, for a rehab game for him. And after the game, we had a day game. He's just like, "Hey, let's go get let's go get, let's go get a late lunch." I said, "Deal." We go in his car, rental car. We go get lunch, and as we're driving back, right, let's just go back to the hotel. I'm like, "Ah, oh, come on, man! It's only six o'clock. Let's do something." He's like, "Nah, let's just go back to the hotel." And then we start driving back to the hotel, and I see a laser tag to pull a spot. I'm like, "Stop the car now!" He's like, "What? Stop the car?" He's like, "Why? There's laser tag. We're gonna play laser tag." He's like, "We're not playing laser tag. We're not seven. We're playing laser tag, and you're gonna like it." He's like, I can't move around a laser tag thing. My knee's injured. I'm like, you just played a double header today. You're fine. You can play laser tag with seven-year-olds. We went in the laser tag spot. He is so reluctant. He does not want to do this. Three hours later, he's in the laser tag room stretching and going through his full stretching routine, getting ready. He's like, Oh, I'm gonna get all these eight-year-olds. These kids are so screwed. I'm gonna he was so into it. We played for three and a half hours. And I when I say he would do intense stretching, like he went back out into the car and grabbed a foam roller to come back in. <laughs> like he was just like, No, we need to we need to show these kids who were his boss. And he had the he had the best time of his life. And the next day he hit two homers, and after the game, he goes back to the big leagues and he just hugs me. He's like, Thank you for that. Laser tag was the best. I'm Humanizing
2: like, baseball. Yeah, it's fantastic. Carlos. I mean, Carlos Quentin, what was maybe the MVP frontrunner for our White Sox in 2008 before, you know, before that playoff run. So what, was, a yeah, what a very,
1: guy. What a guy. Truly misunderstood. I feel like no one, if you didn't get to know him, you didn't take the time to get to know him, you missed out on a gem of a human being. I love him.
2: Yeah. So my last one for you, and... You know, this is for me. This is like the the reason why I wanted to have you on. A lot of people are very excited later this summer. You know, White Sox, uh, Yankees, I believe, at the Field of Dreams game. You're a big very movie. Cool. You're a big movie guy. I told you I wanted to introduce um, our listeners to your correct opinion on this. Yes. Field of Dreams isn't just one of the worst baseball films ever. It's just a bad movie in general. So, can we have Unwatchable. your thoughts on that and then maybe what your favorite one or two baseball movies are?
1: Okay, just so I'm clear, because I can't see you guys. Who is a Field of Dreams fan and who isn't?
2: I'm
0: indifferent. I mean, it's...
2: Yeah, You're so, indifferent? Yeah, yep. so James is obviously the one that you've talked to. I, I, uh, I just have buddies that love it and I've never, ever understood it. It is awful.
1: Oh, that's right. That doesn't make sense. Oh, that's right. This movie has... establishes rules early and then just breaks them the rest of the movie. Oh, that's right. That character didn't matter either. Oh, that's right. No one has character development at all. Oh, that's right. This movie sucks. It always sucked. It was never good. All of you who think it's a good movie, shut up. It's awful. Nothing happens. It all ends because he wants to play catch with his dad. Uh, what well the guys in his 50s grow up and get over it pay your taxes
0: we'll have a catch you know I mean, you grow up you know a lot of the time it resonates with the viewer i mean what's wrong with that
1: I have a father. I've never played catch with him, and I never want to. Okay, okay. What about A Little Big League? How do you feel about that movie? Oh, that's a classic. I'm sorry. I know know you guys are White Sox fans, but, you know, you got to really appreciate that 1996 Twins team. Lou Collins, one of the best movie swings you'll ever see out of Timothy Busfield. Right up there, in my opinion, he's in the top three of baseball swings in a baseball movie. Timothy Busfield as Lou Collins, really good. Great, beautiful left-handed swing. Uh, Number two? I'm going to go with uh, Roy Hobbs himself, Robert Redford. Beautiful left-handed swing. Number one all-time movie star with a swing. I'm sorry, Mr. Baseball Tom Selleck. You cannot touch that swing. You know that guy can hit.
0: Awesome. Cody, you're the man. Thanks so much for jumping on the Future Sox podcast today.
1: Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. And I mean this from the bottom of my I'm so excited, so excited for the White Sox. I think this is going to be a real exciting year. I hope they can get by. In my opinion, they're they're going to be in October. October is just a different ball game. What are we going to get out of those rays this year? What are the Yankees going to look like? Do the Angels decide to compete this season? They've got a couple of arms finally. Maybe they can actually do some damage over there. I'm really, really excited. But in that American League Central, Those White Sox, man, I could not be more excited for your fans over there.
0: Yeah, we're looking forward to it. That's Cody Decker, former Major League Baseball player. Much better. Just just ask him. Also, awesome minor league contributor across his career. Cody Decker, you can follow him on Twitter, at Decker6. Support his product, obviously. You just heard what he brought to the table. Keep an eye out on Cody Decker's work for James Fox. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Future Sox podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.